We're so glad that you're listening to the Branches Podcast. If you're in the Houston area, we'd love to see you in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more information, go to brancheshtx.org. We hope this message helps you draw closer to God and that you hear the good news that you belong. Thanks for listening. What if human beings aren't just thinking things? What if we're less driven by what we believe and more pulled towards what we long for? Maybe human beings are fundamentally lovers, that we are made to love God, to desire God, to hunger for what God desires for his world. And I think that changes the way we think about discipleship because we'll have to start thinking about the power of habit. The things that we do are also doing something to us. Good morning again. It's good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name is Colin, and uh, here at Branches, we're starting a new series called You Are What You Love. And that voice that you heard over that video uh, is James Smith, the author of the book by the same title, from which you can get the premise that uh, what we love, what we point our affections to, shapes us and forms us. Uh, What we love and desire, what we really, really want, shapes who we are and who we're going to become At the beginning of the gospel story of Jesus, Jesus asks these disciples that come to him, what do you want? And then later on, he asks the question, do you love me? And James Smith says that that question is the same question. What do you want? And do you love me? And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next four weeks about what our loves are today, uh, kind of raising the question within us as we audit ourselves. Do we really love what we say we love? and also how we find out maybe what we truly love and how we could reorder and shape that. So we're glad you're here for the beginning of that series. Uh, And if you wanna read along uh, in the book by James Smith, we have copies of the book in the lobby and just a great way for you to dig a little bit deeper on your own or with a group of people. So with that, let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And we want to know you more. We want to be more like you. We want to draw closer to you. So help us in this hour together experience that. Shape our hearts to be more like yours. Shape our hearts to be pointed toward, toward you. And by your love, make us lovers of you and lovers of our neighbors, lovers even of our enemies. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. James Smith says that the temple, the primary place of worship in Western society is the shopping mall. (laughs) And in fact, he's a philosophy professor, so he says he has a penchant for often boring his children. Uh, And so he was once boring his children talking about this idea. And then later that week, his son asked him, can you take me to the temple? (laughs) making fun of him, like, will you take me to the shopping mall? And this is the kind of premise behind that, that, that the shopping mall, it is this picture of uh, the good life. The mannequins are kind of these like faceless, identityless people, but they're wearing the clothes that if you butt wore them, you'd be like them. And these pictures of smiling people, and there's no like bullet point list on signs on the, uh, the store doors that tell you like, if you do these things, your life will shape out this way. It's just an image. It's a, a vision of the good life. And in the shopping mall, we worship that picture, that image of what it is to live a good life. 
I want to add like another facet to James Smith's kind of estimation that the shopping mall is the temple for the good life in the Western world and say maybe to some of your excitement and maybe to some of your horror that we live within a cheesecake factory. Uh, if you've been there, I haven't been in a while, but it's kind of stuck and it's kind of the classic example of like you get their menu and you're like, okay, chapter one, you know, <laughs> appetizers, you know, and it's like pages and pages and pages. And you can, you can take any avenue you want from uh, foods from all around the world and then not even to talk about the cheesecake, like however many dozens of kinds you could have, you could go any direction. As you flip through this like novel of a menu and you could take any of these choices and they shape you and form you physically, like literally at Cheesecake Factory. But as a metaphor for how we live in the West and really the, the Cheesecake Factory is just like telling us something in a small microcosm way of the way our world is. Like you have all these options before you. Like you have so much choice, as paralyzing as it is, just come back next week and try the other thing you were thinking about. That our, our hearts are pointed toward this vision of the good life that, that's been painted by James Smith or by your own life. Uh, and it's not that you thought yourself there, it's that you imagined yourself there, you dreamed yourself there, you loved yourself there. And maybe you're not aware of it, or maybe you're more aware of it than you want to be, that you have this picture. Maybe it's of some stuff that you want, or a relationship that you desire to have or to reconcile, or a place you want to live, or an attitude you want to have, or a status you want to possess. You've loved your way to it. Uh, this vision of the good life, it permeates our culture, and you have competing visions for what the good life is, what it means to live a, a beautiful and productive and fruitful life. There's the, the French children's book, The Little Prince, and the author of that book says that if, if somebody, you want somebody to build a ship, you don't give them the love for gathering the materials and the love for the plans to build the ship, you give them a love for the expansive sea, and then they'll build a ship. That's the metaphor for the vision of the good life. In my own life, you know, I didn't watch someone like playing scales on the guitar and be like, man, I can't wait to play scales. Like, show me how to play scales, show me the exercises, I love that. I, I listened to music that I liked, and I went to concerts, and I watched people play the guitar, and I'm still not very good at it, but I have a love for it, and I want to be better at it. And so, I play scales from time to time. Not as much as I ought to, but I have that vision of what it would be like. And your own vision is shaped by the relationships that you have and the desires that you have. We have this vision of what it means to be a certain person, a picture of what it means to live and before us are a multitude of options. Before us are options that we know are good or bad for us. Like nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, I'm gonna be a consumerist today. <laughs> uh, I really love stuff. I'm gonna think my way into believing that stuff is gonna make my life better and make me happy. But we're susceptible to it. Like before we know it, there's something that we need that we didn't know existed an hour ago. <laughs> Because this picture of who we want to be and who we think we should be and who we should be for other people is painted for us and there's a multitude of choices and we've made choices along the way, conscious of them or not. And that's actually where we find Paul, the author of this letter that we're reading today, Philippians, as he's communicating with this new church community. And just to give you a little background, this is a, a letter that was written from prison so it has a, uh, if you don't know that, you would think he was writing it from some place of privilege, of excitement, of power, but he's not. 
And at the beginning of Philippians, he's offering a prayer, and that's where we find Paul at the beginning of this letter. He says this, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Paul, Paul writes this letter from prison, and a, a little more context is that, that these Philippians, they, they know about Paul because he helped plant their church community. And after he planted their church community and he went into prison, and if you want to read the narrative portion of this, it's in the 16th chapter of Acts, they sent this guy named Epaphroditus, great name, um, I recommend it to you, Epaphroditus. I would love to baptize a baby named Epaphroditus. Uh, He'd be my favorite person. And Epaphroditus comes with this monetary gift to Paul while he's in prison. And this letter is written on the occasion of that gift. That is trying to encourage this Philippian church in his own absence to say thank you for the gift that they've given him and then also encourage them in the life that they live. Because Philippi, where the Philippians live, is a Roman colony. And it's actually out on the fringes, on the edges of the Christian community in Eastern Europe. It's like kind of on the frontier of where these churches are gonna be. And in this Roman colony, we know from excavation and archeology, span there are a lot of kind of um, retired soldiers, important Roman government officials who are now kind of living their best life out in Philippi. And the Philippians, as you keep reading in this letter, are being confronted with this choice between the base affirmation of the Christian church and the base affirmation of what it means to be a good Roman citizen. And that is a choice, less choices than Cheesecake Factory, between Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. Between the the patriotism of Roman society or this radical new community of a homeless carpenter who was publicly humiliated and executed and then apparently rose from the dead. Which one? (laughs) Caesar or Jesus? And, and, And Paul knows the pressure that's been put on them to say Caesar because it protects them, because it's a safe thing to say. But for Christians, for people that are following Jesus, he says, no, you want to affirm that Jesus is Lord. And then there's this beautiful poem that we've read in here before about who Jesus is, that he's, that he's God in the flesh, that though being, in the, in, though being the very form God took on the form of a servant. So likewise, you take on this form. But before he gets to that, we get this prayer, or this encouragement from Paul himself to the Philippians You're gonna make this choice, so here's my prayer for you. Thank you for your gift, now listen. He's filled with gratitude. I thank God for you every time I remember you. I mean, like, 
It's like you hold the card and you pretend like money doesn't fall out of it. You're like, thank you so much, grandma, (laughs) you know? Thank you. I thank God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a kind of a a disagreement here about what sharing means. Is it sharing in the way we talk about it, like I told somebody else about it, or that together in community, they share in this good news, they share this experience. I think it's that one. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. This promise, this will happen. If you just stick with it, if you just attach yourself to Jesus, if you don't forsake his name for Caesar's name, if you, in the face of Roman occupation and Roman oppression, if you'll just stick with Jesus, something good will come of it. You'll bear fruit. It's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. I'm holding, again, holding the gift as I write this. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. I love you the way Jesus loves you, he says. And then it compels him to pray this prayer. We're gonna zero in on verse nine. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless. His prayer is that they be filled with love. His prayer is not that they would be filled with information or facts about Jesus. Share a nice fun fact with your Roman oppressors about Jesus. Maybe that'll get them off your back. No, I want you to be so full of the love of Jesus and this unbroken chain from God the Father to Christ, to me, to you, to be filled with that so that your compulsion, so that your activity, so that your habit, so that what you do in the world reflects that love back into the world. Of course, the, the, the word here for, for love is agape. Maybe you've heard people talk about that word before. And I think a really helpful definition for agape love is devotion, that you can't help but give your heart to it. You didn't think your way into it. In fact, it actually kind of defies logic that you love it, that you're so full of illogical love for people that are oppressing you and harming you and making you make this awful choice. You're so filled with even love for them as Jesus loves them that you're motivated to care for them, to say Jesus is Lord in the presence of them. Agape is devotion. I want you to be so full of this devoted agape love. I learned so much this week thinking about what agape love is, um, from Olivia Newton-John, a uh, big fan, rest in peace, uh, who in uh, Hopelessly Devoted in Greece, uh, I asked Carrie to sing it. She said no. <laughs> uh, uh, says, my head uh, is telling me, fool, forget him. But my heart is telling me, don't let go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and that's the exact definition of what it means to have agape love for someone that their head is telling me like, well, if I just say Caesar is Lord, then I could just be over this. If I could just kind of roll over, my head's telling me like, fool, forget him, forget Jesus. Not, not John Travolta, we're talking about Jesus now. <laughs> but my heart is telling me, don't let go. And, and Paul's saying, don't let go. Don't give up. In the, in the face of persecution, have devotion to Christ and then he'll be faithful to complete that love in you. He'll be faithful to perfect it. He'll be faithful to grow fruit in you and actually show you status-wise as righteous before him if you don't let go. 
And that, that song, it was like really drilled into me, like hearing her say those words, it's so simple. Your, your head says one thing, your heart says another. And you know, uh, Harry Styles, he did a cover of it too. You are what you love. My wife loves Harry Styles, so I also love Harry Styles. Perfect example. <laughs> that y- your head says, do this, but your heart, it's, just, it's in the face of what you can think your way through. Uh, our recovery friends, you know, the, kind of one of the first lines is, uh, uh, your best thinking got you here. You didn't think your way into this. Your love, your heart, your desire, your engine of who you are, your very being drove you to this place. It, it's, it's other-oriented love, other-oriented even to the Romans. It's other-oriented even to people who, who, who stand in opposition to your vision of the good life if it's Jesus-centered. It guides you in wisdom. It helps you live and to be, be an expert at life to take those steps to be more and more like Christ. It gives you confidence, like Paul, even in imprisonment, not just actual literal imprisonment, but the imprisonment we find ourselves into our desires or to these things that enslave us, the things that hold us down, the, the habits that we can't, think we can't quite shake. It, it frees you from that. And then it points us again, as I already mentioned, to these two questions that Jesus asked his disciples that are then passed on to us. What do you really want? And do you love me? The same question. What do you truly, really, truly want? Each week, uh, we actually are, are confronted by this when we come to the table. That when we come to the table, and, and you'll think about this today, then when you, when you hold your hands open in, in reception, and you don't take communion, you receive communion, that's shaping your love, that love is a received gift. When your hand is in that posture, your heart is in that posture. And we don't do this in our liturgy here at, at Branches for Communion, but a lot of churches, and the Methodist Church and churches all over, they pray before they come to the table, and, and we ask that you pray a prayer like this. They say, uh, God, I confess that I have not loved you with my whole heart. That's the first petition. The first petition is not, God, I confess that I didn't properly formulate the doctrine of the Trinity when I was talking to my friend the other day. <laughs> not wrong thinking, but wrong loving. I, I disordered my love. I put something else less than you before you. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not given that devotion to you that shapes me. And then when we come to the table, we take these, this simple gift of, of bread and cup, and we're reminded of God's grace for us. We're confronted then by like, okay, what's really driving me? What even drove me to come to this place today? What really drove me to wake up this morning? What's really driving me in my work or my vocation? What's driving me in my relationship? What's driving me in that interaction I had with somebody else the other day? Is it myself? Is it this fairy tale picture of me? Is it somebody else's vision that I just adopted, but it's not really mine? Is it centered on, on, on other-oriented, wise, righteous, self-giving love for another, or is it self-serving? Could I, could I do this even if I were imprisoned? Could I, could I orient my love just foolishly to Jesus? There's this great movie called Adaptation. Uh, Nicolas Cage plays twin brothers, uh, Charlie and Donald Kaufman. And it's funny because the movie is written by Charlie Kaufman, uh, but uh, um, he doesn't actually have a twin brother in real life. <laughs> so it's a fictionalized version of his twin. And they're having this conversation uh, where, uh, you know, Charlie is this kind of neurotic person and Donald a little more self-secure. 
and uh, Charlie says, Donald, I remember this time that you were talking to uh, Sarah Marsh in high school. And Donald loved Sarah Marsh, he was in love with her. And they were talking and about meeting up later or something. And Charlie says, and I watched you walk away and I watched Sarah walk away. And as she walked away, she ran into some of her friends and they mocked you and made fun of you. And he's like, doesn't that bother you? And Donald says, Charles, <laughs> title of the book, you are what you love, not what loves you back. That's her business. You are what you love, not what loves you back. And, and, and though he wasn't thinking about it in this like specifically Christian vein, as James Smith talks about it, as we're gonna talk about it over the next several weeks, you are what you love, not what loves you back. The challenge of the Christian faith is actually, you can love one who loves you back. In fact, the one who loves you back is calling you to love him. And that if you love him, if you, if you center yourself on his love, this agape love, this giving of yourself, devoted love, foolish love, it'll shape you. The things you do will then do something to you. And the wild thing is, is like, unlike everything else we could give our devotion to that's gonna shape us and form, it, form us, this one will love you back. This God with a capital G will love you back. Your lowercase g ones won't. This God will bear fruit in you, not rotten fruit. This God will bear in you good qualities and wisdom and, and, and compassion and kindness and justice. And the other things you give your life to, the other things you give your love to won't. And it's a hard thing to hear because then I'm wondering right now, and as I've been wondering this week, and I hope you're wondering, is like answering that question from Jesus. What do I want? Who do I love? Do I say I love one thing and do another? Do I conceal what I really love when I know it's this thing, but I tell others it's this? Do I truly love the things that Jesus desires for me? Do I love what my partner or my spouse loves? Do I love what my political ideology tells me I should love? Do I love what my parents told me I should love? Do I love what Jesus calls me to love and who Jesus calls me to love? We do an audit then. <laughs> we kind of look at ourselves in the mirror and we do the hard work that's not gonna take a moment, it's gonna take a lifetime to, to orient ourselves around what we truly love. And, and it's good to love things other than God. God calls us to love things other than him, but to have them in the proper order drives us to a life that perfects love in us. So then the question we ask, of course, is do I really love what I think I love? And so I wanna begin the series by just us raising that question and then exploring together as a community and then coming to the temple, not the shopping mall, not the cheesecake factory, but, but coming to this place of worship, to come to the table, to sing, to, to read scripture together, to pray with one another, to let those things shape our loves first that we might then share with the world the love that has shaped us. That's the call, that's the invitation. That's what Paul prays for the Philippian community, that you begin with love and love is the basis for knowledge about something. To love one another, to love our city, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to love and let that love shape you. Let's do it together, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you call us to ask the question, what do we want and do we love you? Make us really ask it. Raise the question when we come to the table today. 
Help us see that our restlessness, our longing, our feeling half empty might come from not loving you or not loving you in the right order or not loving you the way you wanna be loved. So first remind us of your love for us, your just boundless, reckless, open, giving love and let it shape us. Let us shape what we think about you, what we feel about you, what we believe about you, and then ultimately what we share about who you are with our city, with our community. We love you. Shape and strengthen that love, even now. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.